series to Luke chapter 20. And if you'd like a title for this morning that you're making notes, I've called this message Resurrection Realities. You know, right here in Luke chapter 20, Jesus is now in the last week of his life here on earth. He's already entered into Jerusalem. He did that on Palm Sunday. He's going to be giving his life away as a ransom for many just five days later on the Friday. This is the last week of Jesus' life. But before he gives gives his life away as a ransom for many, he, he is bombarded with questions in the temple. First of all, by the Pharisees and then to come the Sadducees, as we'll see in this text. Each and every member is seeking to derail him, seeking to entrap him, seeking to discredit Jesus. Effectively, it comes with the undertext of do not listen to this man. But they are no match for Jesus, as we will discover. Let's read together Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, teacher... Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are all-knowing and all-wise. Lord, when we gather around your word and we hear you, you talking to people, We are astounded because we are gathering around the one who sustained and created and ordered the cosmos. What a mind you are. So Lord, help us understand your mind today. Help us understand what you're saying. And would our lives be changed as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it seems like a very long time ago now that I actually went to school But I was one of those kids that really loved school. I did. I would get up in the mornings excited about the day ahead. I loved school for so many different reasons. I loved playing in the bands. I enjoyed that. Played drums. I loved playing sports all the time. I tried to get in every school team there was. I loved break time and lunchtime. We just played sports throughout the whole time. I loved the canteen. It was fantastic. Sausage, chips, Every break time, donut for lunch, and what mum had packed for me. I loved school in every way. I loved my friends. I loved hanging out with my friends. I loved being with them. I was so sad when I actually left school. I even loved learning. 
I actually liked going to classes and I really enjoyed people teaching me about geography and history. It just seemed really interesting. I enjoyed school in many ways. However, when it came to class, there was one person that would always beat me in everything. And his name was James Foley. Whatever the class was, he would always beat me. I went to a grammar school, so it was like a selective school, and it was really old school. They would even number you in the desks, 1 to 24, depending on how you went in the exams. I could never get to number one. There he was, James Thorley. Every class, even in sport, he would, he would always, he was faster than me, better than hockey than me, better than soccer. James Thorley was just better than me and practically everything in every way. There are some people that are quite simply are just in a class of their own, are they not? And when it comes to Jesus, the God-man, the one in whom the fullness of God dwelt bodily, it is very clear in the text that he is, without doubt, always and consistently in a class of his own. He's above everybody in every way. And these Pharisees and these Sadducees right here in Luke chapter 20 are finding that out the hard way. They are taking on a genius. They're seeking to discredit him. That's a really bad idea. So in verses 1 through 26, we see, as Brendan preached so well yet last week, we see the Pharisees taking Jesus on. The Pharisees are the religious conservatives of the day. Okay, they would be watching Sky News all the time. Okay, the Pharisees are definitely hyper-conservative in what they do. They're actually legalists by nature because they're not only conservative, they keep going more and more and more. So they think, at a fundamental level, if we just keep the Bible, if we keep the law, and then we'll build a mystery around it, then we'll be sweet. They are very, very conservative in their behavior and in their understanding of theology. But because of that, they hate Jesus. They don't think he is the Messiah. They've made their decision. And so they seek to discredit him. As we saw last week, they start to ask him about the baptism of John. Did that come from heaven or did that come from man? They seek to trap Jesus through an exegesis and use of the Old Testament about the messianic stone. What's that then, Jesus? And then they ask him, is it lawful then to to give tribute to Caesar or not? They're trying to catch him out all the time. But by the end of that discussion, it's very clear, verse 26, they have no intention of asking him anything else. Because they can't beat him. Every answer he gives actually makes sense. They can't discredit him. This is the king. So the Pharisees on one side of the corn, they are the religious conservatives of the day. And then there's another Jewish sect, which is the Sadducees. They are the religious left of the day. They are liberals. They are not conservative. They are progressives in their thinking. This is the first time, I think, that we actually see them in the Gospel of Luke. They're not a main focus in this Gospel. But you have to understand there's these two Jewish sects. One are the Pharisees. One are the Sadducees. They're very, very different in the way they think about life and Scripture and all that that means. But what we discover in this passage is they are without doubt no match for Jesus as King of Kings of Lord of Lords. So I have three points this morning. Number one, the resurrection ridiculed, verses 27 through 33. Number two, the resurrection defended, verses 34 to 38. And then number three, the resurrection awaited, verses 39 through 40. But really just one hope. And it's the hope that on this anniversary Sunday for us as a local church, we would see from this text, this one thing, that resurrection 
for all those that know Jesus as their Lord and Savior will without doubt be our story. This wasn't a story just for them. This was a story for everybody who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And this story, when seen correctly, changes and influences everything. Three points then, and here's the first. Number one, the resurrection ridiculed. And ridicule it, they did. Look at verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. See, the Sadducees, just to be clear, they do by now, by the time Jesus arrived, they have become a class of their own. You see, the Sadducees are the priestly sect of the day. They are the people that are running the temple. So as a sect, as a group, that is all being done by the Sadducees. They are the chosen priests of the day, if you will. They were the group that have been given the responsibility of serving in the temple as priests. They've been given this responsibility ever since the Jews, the people of God, returned to Jerusalem after their captivity in Babylonia. As soon as they came back from their captivity in Babylonia, it was the Sadducees that were looking after the temple. And it was believed, commonly believed, that the Sadducees were the dependents of Zadok. You remember Zadok the priest? You know the song, Zadok the priest? Okay, well that's a song about the high priest in the time of King David. These are all his descendants. So these Sadducees were all the individuals looking after the temple. But after many years, year after year, decade after decade, they had become liberal in the way they thought and behaved. One illustration of that is the Sadducees had become incredibly materialistic in the way they operated. The temple business of exchanging money and buying and selling goods, guess whose idea it was? It was their idea. This is how we can make some money. This is how we can make some cash for the temple and ideally ourselves. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian at the time, he said of Ananias, the Sadducean high priest, he said that he had advanced in his reputation Because he was able to supply them with money and all that they needed. Do you remember Ananias, the high priest, who we see in the text, we see in the Bible. What they're making it clear is he worked his way to the top because he was quite corrupt. He'd be buying people off, making money, buying people, buying people. That's the way he was able to do it. They were incredibly materialistic and the way they thought as a group and as a Jewish sect. And likewise, they'd become liberal and progressive in their theology as well. What started so good had started to be. And after decades, and when we get to meet them, we find that this is a group of people that no longer believe in the eternal judgment of God. They don't believe that anything awaits anybody after death. In fact, they didn't believe in life after death. And as a circumstance of that, they certainly did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, which is the point here. They didn't think there was anything after death. You just die and you're done. They believed at a fundamental level that your soul perishes with your body and then we're done. It was heresy, but they believed it. And so everything in their mindset is We need to understand they're liberal, they are progressive. They've started to move away from what the Bible actually teaches. We see the Apostle Paul recognizing this and calling them out on it in Acts 23, verses 6 to 8. It says, now when Paul perceived that one part, one part of the group he was talking to, was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, 
It is with respect and the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So there's these very two different groups that remain long after Jesus' day. These Sadducees and Pharisees. One believes in the resurrection of the dead, no problem. The other ones, the the Sadducees say there is no way. And the way they got there is they ignored an awful lot of the Old Testament texts. They decided that they were just going to hold on to the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And they believed, wrongly, as we're going to see in this text, that it doesn't talk about the resurrection in those. Jesus calls them out on that. But as far as they're concerned, the first five books don't talk about the resurrection of the dead. And so, yes, there's Job 19, and yes, there's Psalm 16, and yes, there's Isaiah 26, and yes, there's all what the Pharisees are saying. But we'll ignore that. We'll just stick with our way. So their idea is that there is no resurrection from the dead. They believe it. And so they're going to use this opportunity to call Jesus out, to pull the rug out from underneath his feet and seek to discredit him by asking him some tricky questions about the resurrection. Let's read these tricky, sneering questions. Verses 28 through 33. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and rise up, uh, uh, sorry, raise up his offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. This is a tricky little riddle that they're effectively putting to Jesus in this moment to try and discredit him. At the core of their approach is actually the Old Testament command and long-standing tradition of, of the Jews. That if a man's married brother dies childless, then he must marry the widow. That was the way all the Jews worked. It's in Deuteronomy. So if I'm single and my brother is married and he dies, but that wife has no children, I need to marry this woman. Why? Well, to care for her, make sure she's protected. There's no welfare. You're not going to Centrelink and getting anything. So it's to make sure she's being cared for. And it's also to make sure the family line carries on. There's legacy. There are children and there is a lifeline. So they ask him a question. Listen, so that's the undergirding thought and understanding. Everybody in the room would have understood that. So they put forward this ridiculous riddle that, okay, well, what about this lady? This this guy's got seven brothers and they all marry this woman and they all die without any children. What does that mean in the resurrection? It's going to be a disaster. Who is she going to be married to? I want you to understand this is playground stuff. They are all slapping themselves on the back. You've got him. You've got him. That's what's going on here. In their minds, we've totally caught him out. They've probably been doing this to the Pharisees for decades. And no one seems to be able to answer it. But they ain't met Jesus before. They haven't met him and tried the same thing. See, the working assumption for these Sadducees is that the resurrected life will be an exact imprint of what we have here. So if it exists, which they don't believe it is, but they're working assumption that if it does, it will be an exact imprint, which is why in part they believe it can't work. Let me explain. 
The reason why they're calling Jesus out about these seven brothers is this resurrected woman would have been effectively, if she's rised from the dead and in heaven with seven husbands, she's committed incest. So that's going to be very frowned upon. That's sinful. That's not a good thing. But if she says, no, I'll have to divorce six of them, well, on what grounds? So that's really sinful. How can that work in the heavenly realms? So they're trying to trap Jesus into saying one of those things. Or, as they think, it's not one of those things. Just resurrection isn't true. So which one is it, Jesus? (laughs) Slap, slap, slap. They have not taken on Jesus before. This man is in a class of his own. And that takes us to my second point, the resurrection defended. And defend it, he does. With genius. See, first up then, he gives them a theological defense for why what they are saying is stupid. Verse 34 through 36. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are going and are, and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore. Because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. The first part of Jesus' answer here, by way of a theological defense, offers a correction to the Sadducees about their faulty theology. And the way he does this, by helping them understand, listen, your human existence in reality is in two different stages. There is this age and there is that age. And you think they're both exactly the same thing, but I'm here as your savior to tell you they are not. There is this age, and then there is that age, and they are not an exact imprint of each other. So, for example, considering you've asked me a question about marriage, here's the heads up. There will be no marriage in that age. Now, they had not anticipated that answer, but that's what Jesus is going after. You see, the reality is in the heavenly realms, no one is married anymore. See, marriage, as explained in Ephesians chapter 5, we have to understand, is a signpost to the gospel, is it not? Marriage is designed by God for a man and a woman to come together, and it is a picture, a moving parable by God of the gospel, of the way Christ, as as the groom, operates with the bride, the church, and how they love one another. You see, singleness is a wonderful signpost to the sufficiency of the gospel. That Jesus is enough for me. Marriage is a wonderful signpost to the pattern of the gospel. The way it works within a context of Christ's love for his church. It is a signpost given by God to point the world to the glories of who Christ is. But here's the reality. In the heavenly realms, we don't need that signpost anymore, do we? Because we are the bride, the church, and the great groom, Jesus Christ, will be there. The signpost will not be needed because we will all be gathered around the throne of Jesus, single and married alike, singing, worthy is the lamb because the groom has come. In the heavenly realms, it will be different. The signpost of marriage won't be needed. Now, if you are married, I know what you're thinking in this moment. That is very, very disappointing. And it can be hard, isn't it? Emma and I have always had an agreement that, look, if we're not married, we'll live together. We'll find a way, you know. It can be really sad. It can be really hard to get our head around. Well, what do you mean not married? That sounds really, really difficult. And I've just spent so many years with you here, and I want to be with you there. Listen, the realities of Scripture, my friends, 
is that within the heavenly realms, we will love each other even more than we love each other here in this earth. You will experience a relationship with your spouse from here on this earth far greater and better than anything you've ever experienced here. And the truth is you will experience relationships with one another greater than anything you could have asked or imagined here in the earth. It's like trying to explain to a kid that's on milk that one day you're really going to like a McDonald's. And they're looking at you just to say, no, I want my mum's milk. And you go, no, you are going to love a McDonald's. All we're on is milk. We can't see it. We struggle to taste it. But one day we will see something different and we'll go, this is great. And he'll say, I know, I told you. Marriage in the heavenly realms is not going to be needed. There's no more marriage in heaven because that to which it points, it will no longer be needed as a pointer because he will be there, the great groom of all, and we will be there as the bride of all, the church. And then he tells us, listen, there's no more death in that age. See, part of the reason why God gave us marriage is not just as a signpost. He also gave us marriage because guess what? People die. And if procreation is happening in marriage and designed by God to happen in marriage, and that's the foundation of where children should come from, if that's the way it goes, then we're dead within a generation if no one's procreating. So God gives us marriage in part, understanding that this is how the human race will carry on. This is how children will be made. This is how ancestry will be made. This is how generations will be made. But here's the point. In heaven, no one dies. It's not needed anymore. The death knell of funerals will never be heard in heaven. There will be no broken down bodies in heaven. There will be not a gray hair in sight in the heavenly realms. We'll barely recognize Brendan when we're there. You know, there will be no gray hair amongst anybody. I know. That, that just blessed me to be able to say that in so many ways. <laughs> Listen, there's no doubt that when we get to heaven... And we see one another, there will be, in all honesty, eternal youth for us to enjoy. No one is going to die in the heavenly realms. So marriage won't be needed in the same way, because no one's going to be dying. And as he tells us in verse 36, we will all have an exalted existence in the age to come. We will be equal to the angels. We'll be sons of God. We'll be sons of the resurrection. Listen. To just pause and actually see this for what it is. It is a game changer. See, maybe you're here today and your body is breaking down on you. And you know it. Maybe there are things going on in your life physically that people know about. Maybe there's things going on in your physical life that people don't know about. But you know it. Maybe for some of you, you live with consistent pain to which there will be no expiry date here on this earth. Well, my friends, I want to encourage you. One day, when you see his face, you'll be given a new body where there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more decay, No more need to face operations or medication or difficulty. Because when you see his face, he will give you, in the right sense, the body of an angel. He's not talking there about you getting wings and all the rest of it. He's saying, listen, your body will be perfect and beautiful, just like theirs. It won't decay. What a real life, enjoyable reality that is, don't you think? 
What hope it gives us all. What is sown in weakness, Paul tells us, will one day be raised in power. Maybe you're here today and your struggle is not physical pain, but maybe your struggle is heart pain. You've had tragedies in your life. Maybe for some of you, you've been on the end of abuse in your life. And the reality is, given a room this big, that will definitely, that will definitely be true for, for some of you. And maybe you live with those internal scars. Things you struggle with, things you deal with. Maybe you're struggling even now with heartache or things that are going on that you just think, this, as I think about it, makes me extremely sad. Well, listen, one day, when you see his face, he will take you by the hand and he will wipe away every tear from your face. Because you'll be home. Your race will be done. Your suffering will have finished. And you won't just hear, well done. He will take you and wipe your face. Because it will have all come to an end. Maybe you're here today and you're annoyed with how distracted you keep getting. You want to run for Jesus. You really do. You want to run for him with all your heart. And then every time somebody speaks about it, you realize you've got distracted again. And maybe that's really frustrating for you. It's really annoying for you. Well, one day when you see his face, my friends, you will be like the angels. You will be sons of God. You will be sons of the resurrected. And praise God, you won't be distracted anymore. Because we will be made perfect. We'll have no other longings apart from just wanting to be with Jesus. We'll have no other sinful distractions at any point other than I just want to worship you and live for you and be amazed by you. Just like the angels, so we will be. What a glorious and precious reality that is, don't you think? What hope we find in these woods. They're not just some historical point of distraction and argument with random Jesus and Sadducees. No, these have incredible reality implications for every one of us in the room. They should give us hope. Because resurrection, when we truly put our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, will be our reality. Right up front, and Jesus takes them on through a theological defense. They're wrongly thinking this age will be just like the next if resurrection even exists. And he wants to tell them resurrection does exist, and this age is nothing like the age to come. It'll be very different. And then in verses 37 to 38, he gives them an exegetical defense. I love this. When all their lives they've worked on the premise that, hey, resurrection isn't in the Torah anyway, don't shoot me. Well, he's now going to try and help them read their Bibles. Verses 37 and 38. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. Oops, (laughs) that's in the Torah. In the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. I love the way he does this. All their lives they had been working on the premise that the resurrection is not found in the Torah. It's simply not there. And so Jesus takes them right to the second book of the Torah, the book of Exodus, and says, "Eh, it's right there. Exodus 3 verse 6, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. His point is this, Sadducees, notice the tense in which God talks. 
He doesn't say, I was the God of Jacob, but now he's dead. I was the God of Abraham, but now he's dead. He's talking present tense. How is he able to do that? Well, he's able to do that because they're still alive. They have risen from the dead. They now make up part of the great cloud of witnesses that we hear about in Hebrews 11. They are singing around the throne room of heaven. Even now, I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Abraham. Why? Because I'm the God of the living and not the dead. Brilliant. Jesus takes them on right to the heartland of what their understanding is in the Torah. And it helps them see, guys, it's right there. Even there, it pointed to the resurrection. And my friends, all the way through the Old Testament, we see reference after reference after reference to the glories that we will rise again. In Isaiah 26 verse 19, for example, it says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your Jew is a Jew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. It speaks of resurrection. He's coming back. You're going to go be with him. Psalm 73 verse 24. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. It's resurrection language. It's right here, you are my guide, and when I die, I will go be with you, and I'll be received into glory. We see the same in Job, probably the oldest book of the Bible, the oldest human being. It says in Job 19, verse 25 to 27, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, he's talking there about death, After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, who I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Oh, my heart faints within me. Why does his heart faint within him? His heart faints within him because he knows when I die, I'm going to go be with you. And he's amazed. He's humbled and amazed. I'm going to go be with you when I die. All the way through the Old Testament, you see references to resurrection. And then the New Testament, it becomes completely explicit. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 to 18, we read, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. What a day it will be, will it not? And then in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44, so it, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. He's pointing time and time again, helping us see, this is not it. Life will go on. And he makes it explicit, John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. Time and time again throughout the Bible, we are determined and we are held before us. You will live on. This dot on this earth is not where it finishes. There is a line of eternity to come. 
So for sure, though he may die, those who trust in him, yet will they live. Sadducees? Yeah, I just can't quite see it. I can't quite. It's right there. And my friends, for us as a local church, we need to understand it is right there all the way through. That this ain't it. Death isn't the end. It's just the comma. And then the reality of the future really begins. And that takes us then to my third and final point, the resurrection awaited. And what implications this has for us. Look with me at verses 39 through 40. It says, then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. The Pharisees have no more questions for Jesus. I'm not taking him on again. The Sadducees, I ain't asking him any more questions. He's too clever. He's James Thorley, you know. He's the one that always wins. I can't. There are no more questions going to be heard by any Pharisees or Sadducees. And yet I think there is a question asked to each and every person in the room in this moment that is implied throughout the entirety of this text. And it's this. Do you believe? Do you believe in the resurrection? The Sadducees didn't. Do you believe? Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? Maybe more importantly, do you believe that it will involve you? See, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, thank you so much for coming. Maybe you're here because your dad has dragged you along. Maybe you're here because a friend has brought you along. Maybe you just randomly walked in. It's great to have you. But maybe if the truth be known, you're somebody who's sitting here saying, I I don't know quite what he's talking about. And I don't know this Jesus that he's talking about. I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm not following him as my Lord. I've not bowed my knee and I'm following him. Listen, I'd want you to know, and a desire to be a faithful friend to you, the realities of scripture and what they teach. See, in Hebrews 9 verse 27, we read, man is destined to die once, And after that, faces judgment. See, the truth is, everyone will rise again. The question is, which side of the coin will you be on? Man is destined to die once, and after that, faces judgment. Okay, so now we're facing judgment day. So what happens? Well, we're either going to the right or to the left. If we go into the right, then what that means is we stand before Jesus as the holy judge. What that means is that we've, we've, we are numbered among those who have put their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. See, the Bible's clear that man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. And the Bible's also clear that in and of ourselves, we are naturally under judgment. Why? Because we were created by God and made for God to be with him, but we all rejected him. We all didn't fancy that. We all did our own thing. Instead, by very nature, then we are under God's wrath because we are sinful before him as the creator. But the Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And a Christian 
is somebody that says, I believe that. I believe I've sinned before God and I believe I need a saviour. And I believe the saviour is you, Jesus. And you put your faith in him as your Lord and saviour. What the Bible tells you is on that day then, when you die and you face judgment, you will go to the right. Because what he will say is, you listen, well done. And you will stand there thinking, but I, I did sin in my life. I did many things wrong. And he'll say, I know. And it was paid for in full by my son on the cross. You have been forgiven. You have been justified. Welcome home. And yet the other person is somebody that looks at Jesus and says, No. I don't want you. I don't believe in you. I'm going to do my thing. Well, they too will rise from the dead on that day. They too will give an account for their sin. And they will go to the left. What's the left? Well, it's Jesus effectively saying, away from me, I never knew you. All of your life here on the earth, you lived saying you didn't want me, you didn't believe in me, you'd had no interest in me. So now in all eternity, I'm giving you everything you ever wanted. I'm removing you from me for all eternity. And I'm removing all the blessings that you enjoyed here on this earth and never gave me credit for. You're going to be punished for eternity. That's the choice. Man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. And in Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. My friends, I want to encourage you then, if you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you have a Father in heaven who longs to call you home. You have a Father in heaven that longs to forgive you of your sin, to redeem you back to himself, to adopt you into his family, and to assure you that heaven will be your home. What that takes is bowing the knee to him and saying, thank you for all you have done for me. I want to rise and go forward and follow you. I did that when I was 20 years old, and I've never looked back. I could not believe what it meant to be a Christian. I was so amazed at what it would feel like to know I've been forgiven of my sin and redeemed and justified. And I was so amazed at all the things that I thought in this world would bring me pleasure suddenly crumbled before my eyes. And I realized they're a massive distortion and a ripoff to the truth of following Jesus. Don't be duped. Follow Jesus. Put your faith in him. And you will find the sum of everything you've ever been hoping for. And more importantly, on that day, you will receive, come right, son. Welcome home to your eternity. If on the other hand, you're here today and you do know Jesus, which is most of you. I simply want to encourage you in light of the reality that we are going to indeed rise again. I want to urge you, not just as a church, but to each and every individual. Do all you can to live for the long tomorrow. It is so easy in our lives to think of this dot that we live on, this maybe 100 years. My granddad is 101. My granddad's 101 and my grandma's 98. That diet was similar to mine. Just, just putting it out there. That has nothing to do with anything, but I was putting it out there. So my granddad's 101. My grandma's 98. They're both in a home at the minute. I got sent a picture the other day. Everyone looks like they're having fun. Who's that in the corner asleep? Ah, my grandma and granddad. All day. But say you live till you're 101. That's still just a dot. 
when we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of millennia to come. Church, don't get distracted with this dot as if this is all there is. Because all we do then is we eat and drink and we be merry. Live this life with that line in mind. Live for that day. That resurrection day. When you're going to go be with him. The Bible tells us that we were made for a person in a place. That person was Jesus. And that place is with him in the heavenly realms. So do all you can to live for the long tomorrow. That's what it's all about. Resurrection for all those who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior will without doubt be our story. When we planted Sovereign Grace Church Sydney, it wasn't designed just so that we could all enjoy it in the now. It was with a burden in part to prepare people for eternity. And I want to be one of those guys who's the loudest on that day when you are receiving your well done at the back. Thinking what a privilege it was to be involved in part of that story. Run hard, my friends. Resurrection will come sooner than you think. Let's live for that day. Let's pray. Jesus, it is so wonderful to see the way you communicate to us in your word. Lord, as I spend time around you, and as we all spend time around you this morning, hearing you talk with such clarity and argument, you realize you are a class by yourself. Oh Lord, may it long for us to spend increasing time in your word, understanding you will guide us with wisdom, wisdom from on high. Our Lord, would you help us as your followers to fix our eyes on the long tomorrow? Lord, one day we'll be there and we'll stand before you and we'll sing around your throne. May we get to that day not looking back with major regrets of distraction. Instead, would we run hard? Would we get to heaven tired? And would it all be for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.